All right, next up, um, Joe Lonsdale. We go, Joe Lonsdale's gonna come up. He's gonna tee it up for about five or 10 minutes in a solo dolo. He told me he's burning the house down. Well, hello, Miami. It's good to be here from Austin for a day. We're uh, it's the second, second best tech city here. It's not too bad. How many people actually are in, live in Miami? I'm curious with the crowd. We've been over that. So everyone's flown in town like me. That's pretty cool. Well, you know, I'm, I'm generally an American optimist, but I want to talk about a lot of stuff that's broken right now that we know how to fix, but we aren't. And, you know, talking to these guys, especially hearing from Elon and everyone today, it's just so exciting what our civilization is going towards, what it could be doing. But if you talk to a lot of our smartest friends, uh, you, know, you look at guys like Dolly or Bridgewater and others, you know, they see America in decline. They see decadence, they see decay. And I think there's a lot of important questions we're facing right now, like why do these happen to a civilization? Why, why when there's so many exciting things going on that we know can make a really great future, you know, for our kids and grandkids and for humanity, why, why is this stuff breaking? And I want to tell you a little story. I have a policy group in Austin, and we have, you know, we, we follow the homeless population there. And, and we're going along with a, a middle-aged Mexican gentleman who had you know, just lost his job, and he went into the homeless center. He's just really struggling. And he says, you know, I really want to try to find a job. I want some job training. And the, and the, and the person working there, she says, you know, sir, you deserve a home. And he said, yeah, that's great, but, you know, what, can I get some training? And she said, you don't need to worry about that. You need to worry about getting a home for people just like you and what you deserve. And, and, and I want to back up about the situation in Austin, because we're seeing this all over the country right now. You know, in 2018, the mayor of Austin went to San Francisco and LA, and, and you know, he was asking them for advice on what to do for homelessness. There wasn't really homelessness downtown. It's funny, it is funny to me too, but there's actually a reason he was asking them for advice, and it's, and it's a special interest thing, where there's actually hundreds of millions of funding that goes to these groups, NSF and LA, that work on this, and to all of their friends, and to all the people with their politics. And it's, it's a huge money spigot for, for, for politicians. Is they're very powerful in those other cities. In Austin, they didn't have that money spigot, and he wanted it. And you know, you know what they told him? I heard this from both sides. He said, you know, you have to show people that capitalism doesn't work. You got to put it in their faces, uh, and then you'll get funding. And he went back to Austin, and he brought all the camps downtown. Uh, homeless deaths spiked, homeless trafficking spiked, sex trafficking spiked, drugs spiked. But uh, the funding went way up for him and his friends. Uh, they got massive new funding, you know, unaccountable sources of money for these people. And, 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 then, and then, of course, they start deploying the answers, which is the housing first strategy. And, and, and by the way, this is not just like a right versus left thing. I think housing first was first deployed under W. Bush. So this is, this is a general strategy. You guys probably know in LA, they spent $800,000 per new home trying to solve this problem. There's 7,000 nonprofits right now, you know, funded by HUD around our country with the same philosophy. And the philosophy is no pay for performance, no transparency, no accountability, just build the homes. And you know, when I first heard about this a decade ago, I thought, wow, that makes sense. There's 5,000 homeless people. Let's build 5,000 homes. Uh, it, it turns out that there's still about a couple percent of our society that really don't have a home, but they're living kind of on the edge on people's couches, with other family, with friends. So the actual demand for homes, I mean, it turns out maybe it's about 6 million, 10 million. It's, it's effectively infinite. There's infinite demand for homes in our society. And who do you think gets these homes when we build them? So, so, so this guy, we were following you know, a few hundred people with my philanthropy group, and, and our team goes back in with him. And he gets in line, and he's been leaving between a camp that they helped him set up in downtown and, and, uh, and, and a relative's house, but he's, you know, he's saying he's living outside in camp. And he goes back, and he's just missed getting a home, and he's frustrated, and they're explaining the point system. And he says, wait a second, so you're saying that if I was on drugs, I'd qualify for a home? And they said, well, we don't like to say it that way, but that's true. 
And he says, you're saying if I committed a crime, I'd qualify for a home. And they're like, well, yeah, but that's, that, yeah, we don't like to say it that way, but that's true. That would have given you enough points to qualify for a home. And, 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 and what happens here, if you try to bait this system, there's you know, 7,000 of these groups around, around the country, uh, you're, you're screamed at as a racist, you're screamed at with ad hominem attacks. There's three things. One, there's not the intellectual humility to see that there may be other answers that may be correct. Two, there's no respect for the dignity of, of everyone in these conversations. If you disagree, you are a bad person. And three, there's no passion for the truth. These people are not trying to pursue the truth. These people already have the truth, and they're giving it to you as a dogma. And, and this is true of pretty much every of these broken areas in our society, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them right now. There's like, you know, we have 50 training programs that we spend a lot of money on the federal government. They're not accountable. They don't tend to work. They're very broken. There's no transparency. There's no competition. There's no debate. You're either for it or against it. And you're a bad person if you're against it. There's, there's, there's these vocational schools around the country. Texas vocational schools uh, were really underperforming seven years ago. And, uh, you know, what we did is we ended up actually changing them so that the schools were only going to be funded based on the salaries of the students coming out. If you tie it to graduation rates, it doesn't work because they can graduate everyone. But we tied to the salaries coming out. We got the, we got the salaries coming out to go up 117% just by putting in that accountability. But, but most of the country doesn't do that. Most of the country, there's vocational schools, people go, very low graduation rates, they fail. Uh, we're not gonna go into the K to 12 issues you guys know about, but one fact most people don't know is the education inequality in this country is far greater than the wealth inequality, far greater. So, so there's, I mean, you know, and you guys probably see there's infant formula production thing, which is a crisis right now. There's really basic policy mistakes around that. The way we run our prisons, our probation and parole, there's all sorts of ways to run them much better. We're not doing it though. Uh, you know, I'll give you one other example because Elon was speaking today. Austin Infrastructure. I'm very excited about his boring company. And, you know, they, in Austin, we passed a $6 billion, $7 billion plan to build a really small amount of infrastructure. It's already ballooned and cost of $12 billion. You know, for, for, for less than half the original money, for $3 billion, you could do over 100 times as many, uh, as, as many tunnels in terms of what they're building right now. And, and you and you do, you know, with, with, with uh, oh, 100 more stations. And so basically for a tiny fraction of the cost, and again, I go and talk to the city and talk to the guys. There's no intellectual humility. Uh, the, you know, we don't, there's no, they don't respect your dignity. Elon's a bad guy. We don't like Elon, whatever, because they're, they're some kind of extreme version. And, uh, and they're not interested in the truth. They're, they're really not. They're just interested in like what they're going to do their way. And, and so can you kind of come back to this? Like what, what's going on in our society? Where is this coming from? And, you know, say, what causes decadence, decay, and decline? I think the more important question is, what actually works? Like, why is our society functional? And I think this, you have to take it back to the Enlightenment, right? I mean, this, if you look at the exponential growth that's happened, that's created the wealth that all of us enjoy, it really happened over the last few centuries, kind of post-Enlightenment. And, and, and you had a society that really cared about pursuit of the truth, really cared about competition of ideas, right? I mean, and, and, you, and you need the virtues for this to work, right? The classical virtues that we talk about in our civilization, Justice, wisdom, temperance, courage. You need the courage to actually fight for the truth. And so, what, 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 and a long time ago, you tended to have religious dogma, uh, which could be some form of virtue signaling, some form of, some form of you know, basically keeping out outsiders. And then you had, separately, debate and substance. And debate and substance generally lost to religious dogma. And what was unique about the Enlightenment, what was unique about our university system, uh, which, we, which we created, was the liberal universities were a place to have debates where substance could actually win against you know, dogma and against you know, people, who, people who disagree. You actually had to disagree civilly, and you actually had to pursue truth. You had to have the intellectual humility to know that you don't have all the answers. You had to respect the dignity of people who are debating, and you had to fight for a passion for the truth. And, and what's happened instead is that most of our universities have been conquered by dogma and by religion. 
They, they no longer have these things. So once again, we have the idea of heretics and blasphemy. We don't call that, we don't use those words, but that's what we're facing right now. If you disagree with people, you're a heretic and you're committing blasphemy. If you speak against all sorts of these things you're not supposed to speak against. If you say that DEI is actually causing problems, if you say that, that here's why ESG is wrong, that's like, it's blasphemous. You're not, this isn't your stuff, you're not allowed to attack these days, you're in trouble, you're told not to speak against it again or else you're fired. This has been written about in lots of corporations right now. This happens to all sorts of people. And, and this is happening first and foremost on our, on our campus. What's happened is this is zero sum, historically illiterate, intolerant, virtue signaling religion has completely taken over and is silencing people. And you know, our founders, our founders were, were quite fond of heretics. And I don't know if people realize that, but that, that was kind of the equivalent debate 300 years ago to this, to this woke religion, is that Benjamin Franklin, he said, I think all heretics I have known have been virtuous men. They have the virtue of courage, or they wouldn't venture their heresy. And they cannot afford to be deficient in other virtues due to the numerous uh, enemies they provoke. And so, you know, I think thinking what's going on here, all of us, first of all, need to go back and think about like where, where do we not have enough humility to try to learn more? Where, where are we not respecting people who disagree and actually engaging them and debating them as opposed to calling them names, running them off? And, and frankly, I think we should also remember it's actually really good to be offended. Uh, it's the opposite of safe spaces. There's this weird cultural thing with the millennial generation, I guess I'm barely part of it, unfortunately, where you're basically supposed to protect people from being offended. You're supposed to protect them from blasphemy. Uh, I think it has to be the opposite if our civilization is not going to decline. I think we actually have to go out of our way to learn that when we're offended, we have to be stronger. Uh, it doesn't mean you're, in, you're somehow like elevated as a victim if you're offended. That's your problem if you're offended, and you just stop and think about it, and, and, and we need to use that to advance our civilization again. So that's my, that's my save for today. Jason wanted me to add a bunch more blasphemy, but I'm going to hold off on that. I think you did enough. I think you did enough. Have a seat. Let's talk. Let's chop it up. Get in here. Let's talk about why people feel like they're victims. What do you think in our country makes certain people feel that they've been victimized? What are the valid reasons people might feel that they have gotten a raw deal in America? I mean... I think all of our ancestors have gone through this. I'm Jewish and Irish. There was, when my ancestors came over, there were signs saying no dogs or Irish allowed. My grandfather was only promoted to a certain level at Abbott because he was a Jew. I actually didn't realize they'd hired a Jew and they, they laughed and said, oops, that was a mistake. You can only get to this level. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think, I think there has been some pretty horrible things everywhere in the world, frankly, not just, not just America. I think everywhere you look, there's, there's always been groups that have been treated pretty badly. I'm Irish as well. Irish need not apply. Yep. We had a pretty horrific famine. And, 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 I'm lucky, and, and, that, and it's obviously a lot easier to be Irish than it is to be someone who's black in America. I think or Jewish are, and the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. So no, you that, would well, agree that's, that's true. different people's experiences are on a spectrum of the suffering, correct? 100%. And so people who've suffered more deserve a little more empathy and perhaps a little bit more uh, consideration. They deserve more empathy, but it doesn't mean you should embrace philosophies that are wrong or harmful, right? So, I mean, if you look at the, uh, obviously, like there's a lot of truth and positive parts of the BLM movement the last couple of years, but it's actually led to thousands more deaths in the black community because of the things that it was pushing, because of the bad ideas. We got another one of these things? Yeah, one more, one more. I'm, how many more of these do we gotta do? This, oh this is like way more work than I thought I was signing up for. <laughs> way more work. Someone get this man a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Let him drink, of course.
Hey, we should have had cocktails. I never that. agreed to be in the conference <laughs> business when we started doing this pod. <laughs> Jake, Al, I respect you for what you've he been able to do, but this is way to too much a, work. A you guys said yeah. you wanted to do a look at, yeah, all these fans are here. They're You're doing the Q&A tomorrow. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, Joe, uh, candidly, I think that is where the argument breaks down a bit, is um, people have had different experiences, and I would uh, disagree that people have to stop thinking like victims. I think sometimes we have to think very deeply about the suffering people have had, especially when it's different than the suffering that you and I have had. But that, that it's, so it's true. And I'm not virtual signaling here. I'm just countering the I think I think that's fully true. What I was really against is I gave 10 examples of ways in which our society is broken and hurting poor people, hurting working class people, sure. like just wasting money on things in a dysfunctional ways. And all of that is happening because we're like going to this illiberal society where we're not able to actually like debate things logically sure. and respect uh, respect other people on the other side of the argument. And it's all about demonizing people who disagree with us. Yeah. And I think that's just really, really scary right now. Do you, um, there's a website, people have tweeted this, uh, I think it's, the website is called whatthefuckhappenedin1971.com. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where, yeah. if you go to this website. I don't, oh, tell me. So in 19, if you look back socioeconomically, there's a whole bunch of charts and graphs of everything from GDP to you know, uh, labor participation rates, et cetera. And there is a, a moment in 1971 where just trend lines break. And uh, you know, Dorsey tweeted this out a little while ago. Um, a bunch of people have talked it's, about it. And, the, and everybody has tried to figure out what actually happened I mean, in there's 19- a couple There's a couple of really good explanations, I think, right? Please, so no, I, think, I think the two no. biggest ones, I think the two biggest ones by far is one is tech-driven globalization. And the other one is going off the gold currency, which over-financialized the economy. Yeah, so I think the gold currency one was important. I think the one that people don't talk about, whether you agree with it or not, I'd love to get your perspective, is you know, the move to the great society had a whole bunch of um, things that I think were meant to do uh, meaningful good. And, but, I, and it then broke down the family as well, which is yeah. a huge problem in America. And this is, yeah, so I mean, we talk about things that make civilization prosper. I think you get the classical virtues and you get a strong families. Uh, which, by the way, for whatever reason, I still can't tell BLM was strongly against, which I think is like just, just horrible. So, so I think it is a problem in the white community as well, by the way. It's like almost half of kids are born out of wedlock right now. And if you statistically look at that, those kids just, on average, vastly underperform. This doesn't mean to say there aren't one-off cases and you should get divorced if it's the right thing to do. But, 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 it, but it's, like, it's, like it's really bad for society as a whole, statistically. You can't argue against that. And exactly, we accidentally created the incentives towards divorce in the 1960s, which... It obviously wasn't intentional, but this is a huge problem. You're not, we're not supposed to talk about it. It's like a conservative thing, I guess. Um, and talk about the, the financialization and moving off the gold standard as well. How did that change socioeconomic dynamics in America? Well, basically, it, it made it so there's like a lot more money around. And so I think it, I think it, over, it put more returns into finance. So I, I benefit from this as, as do you for, as an investor. Uh, so, but, but, from so, making things. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think it put more returns into finance and because there's this explosion of, of, of credit and money relative to, so, so I think finance outperformed uh, labor in terms of, it's, it's an advantage for finance, which is not what you necessarily want. It also really, really helped accelerate tech-driven globalization, which probably was good for India and China and Southeast Asia and even Africa, but it basically forced workers in the US to compete against all these people directly. And so you had people paid like 15 times as much in the US, these other people. And, and, and then and it just wasn't sustainable. So over time, these other people just outcompeted over the last 50 years, which is really tough. 
you, you find it hard to find your tribe in Silicon Valley? Like oh, yeah. Intellectually, has it become easier, harder, the same? You know, I, I've just given up on like having even a tribe so much as like, let's work on this together. Let's actually make prisons have lower recidivism and higher employment. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to put these transparency and accountability incentives. And it's hard for anyone to really disagree with that unless you're running the prisons union. And so like we, we got, we're getting all these laws passed from probation and parole and that. We're getting all these laws passed for how to make vocational school work better. Yeah, and what annoys me, Jamath, is that I feel like as people who've su succeeded, we all sort of have a duty to go and fix these problems and almost no one else is working on them. And that, that does annoy me. Um, and then in terms of like, for example, I want to talk specifically because you mentioned higher ed, but if you go a little bit before this, um, we have no real form of competition in the school system. Yes. Um, you, need but, a, you need some mechanism for good ideas to win and bad ideas to lose. And, and the, the existing framework has been charter schools. Um, but that's been attacked under every you know, sort of way, shape, or form. How, um, how does that problem get solved? How do we get kids? Um, you know, so, so the problem, if you just give everybody choice right now and you give them, say, funding, take the money where they want, it basically defunds the public schools, which then hurts the poor kids the most. Uh, and so I understand why people are against like total choice for everyone. It's kind of, it's kind of more like policy detail. I think the way to get around that is you just give the poor kids choice. Because if you just gave the poor kids choice, and now it's very clear you're just doing it to help them, but even them being able to choose will put pressure and get rid of the hurt the bad schools and help the good schools. So you just need some mechanism. Let's do the mechanism through the poor kids because that helps them the most. Like that, that's, that's my view. Seems of actually solution. like a reasonable It's going to be compromise, right? To yeah. try to, why, why shouldn't the, I mean, my kids have choice where to go with my, with, with my wife and I. Why shouldn't poor kids have that choice? So there's, there's things that teachers union is going to hate that, but at least it's a way to kind of maybe build support for it. And is there a way for unions to, to actually do the the part of the job which is about protecting workers with but disentangle some of the financial incentives to aggregate you know dues participate actively in you, you just gotta change the power structure right now they're totally in charge they don't want to give an inch i get it because every time they give an inch they're going to lose more power later on if, if they see that they're losing some battles then they then they have to negotiate and they're going to be more reasonable they're going to say oh yeah you're right we're going to get rid of the bottom 20 percent we're going to you know you, you got to get to a point where the power changes enough that they're willing to then work with you that's not <laughs> But I, but I mean, the bigger, the bigger thing, I think, is we actually need leaders who are courageous, who could speak up about problems in, in, in the midst of everyone yelling and screaming and saying, you're not supposed to say things. You say, actually, I don't care what you're not supposed to say. This is my version of the truth, and this is what's going to be the best in society. And what we're teaching at universities right now is the opposite of that. What we're teaching is, Joe, just don't say that. Joe, why are you causing problems for yourself? Joe, you know you're not supposed to talk about these things. And, I, and I'm so sick of it because... Like this is why all this stuff's broken. It's because and no one's speaking up. You bought a college. <laughs> <laughs> my my friends Barry Weiss and Neil Ferguson and I, uh, along with a couple a bunch of others, are starting a new university in Austin. Yes. Did you buy an existing university? We or got, are you just starting from a clean sheet five, of paper? We got five hundred acres in the water. It's really pretty. It's about fifteen minutes from the Tesla giant Tesla plant, about thirty minutes from downtown. What yeah, will we're, we're build you it. teach? What will the majors be and what will be the approach? You know, the, the hypothesis, you know, as entrepreneurs, our job is to find these gaps in the world where something should exist but doesn't. And it seems like for the first time in a few generations, uh, you could actually build a university that competes with the other very top universities and attracts the very you know, most talented kids. One of my obnoxious views on this, which I think the stage might, might, might agree with just because it's in our direction, is that it used to be the smartest people in the world. A lot of them became professors. 
And now you get a lot of very smart people becoming innovators, becoming builders. Like my smartest friends, I got to drop out of their PhDs from MIT and Stanford and Caltech, actually found more intellectual expression and satisfaction you know, in the entrepreneurship world yeah. than they did there. And so therefore, in order to compete, you, know, you want not only the top professors, but you want to involve a lot of top innovators. And you know, we, want to teach, we want to teach the history of thought in, in, in the free civilizations. You want to actually see like, like how the alignment come about, what were the books, what were the debates that people were having when they founded the country, and kind of, kind of learn that core. Uh, and then we also want to have centers where you know, keep it interdisciplinary. It was one of the key things in universities, this is again somewhat technical, but they're broken because you get these departments that get conquered by a certain ideology. So you get certain people that only allow people who think like them to be in those departments. So you want to, you want to spread it out and keep it interdisciplinary. How much, how much of this is because of tenure? Ten, tenure is a big problem. You want to have some protection. Tenure originally was a great thing, protected you to say what you want. In practice now, it's usually, it's usually the other way around. And, it's, and, and yeah, it's just not good. Yeah. But yeah, no, there's, there's a huge gap there. I think we could fix it. And my goal, obviously, is not to have everyone educated through one great university. It's to put pressure on other universities to change and, and to help build multiple new ones, which I think we need to do. And the school that you start, it, interdisciplinary by nature, which means that not necessarily known as for technical people, for mathematics. Well, there'll be like a center of like political economy and history. There'll be a center of, of, of data science and innovation and, you know, sure. et cetera. There'll be centers, you know, of, you know, arts and writing and stuff. So I think you want different centers, different skills. I think everyone should get the kind of core. Is this and, for and, a profit you know, or is it going to no, be? No, it's nonprofit. It's probably, it's part of me wishes I made it for profit, not because I need to make money, but because it'd be easier to raise money for it. But uh, well, we've, 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 raised, we've raised about $100 million nonprofit. For it, we have the land, uh, so I mean, it's it's, it's going to work. I, I put my name on it, so I'll I'll pay for you most. You raised a hundred million dollars for this. Yeah, the nonprofit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, when do you plan on opening it? Fall of twenty twenty four is our goal for the first class. Be about the size of Caltech at first is the hope. It's a pretty ambitious project. Yeah, well, our country our country needs some some more leaders right now who are courageous and know how to think. How do you think you'll recruit the first class? How, how do you get... Uh, yeah, you want, you want to do much more active recruiting than most of our, our, our top colleges right now, especially because we won't be as known at first. But I'll tell you what, we have a seminar this summer of 80 kids, and we had 44,000 inquiries of, from kids uh, about it. We have, uh, you know, when we first, the first two weeks after the story was out on Twitter in November that we're doing this, we had 4,400 professors apply because these professors are fleeing. A lot of the professors, by the way, a lot of them on the moderate left, they're being attacked by the extremes for, again, talking and, say, about, and saying things you're not supposed to talk about and say. And so, so a lot of them are, are trying to flee to other environments. So there's a huge demand for it right now. It's, it's super weird that college kids, yeah, are against having debates and it's discussions. It's so much worse. So, like, I just find it so weird. Like that was like one of the best sorry, parts of college. Explain this because I don't have a, I mean, I haven't been in college in so, 20. So the last five years has just gotten totally crazy. Like, that, like we had a woman, a professor, a really smart woman, you know, definitely on the left, but like she was applying from NYU law school, asking us, are we going to do a new law school? Cause she can't stand it anymore. And we said, well, what's going on? She said, well, for example, we used to use the Socratic method in my law school. And I would ask tough questions from both sides of the kids. And now in order not to trigger people, I have to write them an email a week ahead of time to make sure I can ask the question that I'm going to ask in class next week. So if to you train were to ask, a lawyer, this is to train a lawyer. I mean, it's just, this is, this is where we are at this point. So to, but like, that's NYU law school. This is NYU but law that's, school. Uh, that's the policy of NYU. I think we got a bigger uh, cycle problem. I don't know, but like this is this, this, our universities have just gone crazy the last five years. Like, but Yale, is, that, is that an isolated incident, or do no, you think Yale, this is? No, Yale has more administrators than students. These administrators are on the whole more likely to be neo-Marxists than to be than to be Republicans. I mean, it's just like these things have gotten very extreme. What do you think, Sachs? 
<laughs> about? <laughs> Did you ever think it would get this bad when, when you were no, doing about the Stanford university review? and you know? I mean, you lived at a time. I mean, you, the the time at Stanford was uh, a pretty bold time when you were there in terms of freedom of speech, in terms of debate, vibrancy. Yeah, what basically happened is all those radicals who are being inculcated and trained and brainwashed at Stanford that we were reacting to, what, 25, 30 years ago, they all graduated. And then they went off into society and took over all these institutions. And that's the problem we have today. Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald were talking about it earlier today, where if you actually look at polling, the biggest divide in America in terms of political and cultural beliefs is whether or not you have a college degree. So if you're basically a college graduate, you're a member of the professional class. If you're not a college graduate, you're a member of the working class. That is the biggest divide. And um, you know the, the members of the professional class, by and large, have very, very far left views on sociocultural issues. That's just a fact. I mean, whether you agree with it or not. Um, and that is creating a huge amount of tension in our society because two thirds of the country is working class, one third is a professional class. And in a democracy, the side that has the larger number should win. So the working class has the votes, but the professional class runs all the institutions. And this is the source, I think, of all of our political strife in America, is that the people who are in charge of our institutions, from the New York Times, to the Washington Post, to the Fortune 500, Disney, Hollywood, um, and you go, go down the list, they have views that are fundamentally in tension and in conflict with the views of most of the country, the working class of the country. Now, if you're a member of that class, you may think it's a good thing. We're gonna push our views onto the country, whether they like it or not, and we're gonna convert them. That's what you call the elite class, right? That's the elite. And, um, and that's what's basically going, now, I, like what I'm describing, is not like a criticism. I think it's just like, I think, that's what I think it's just a factual critique of what's Martin. happening. Well, yeah, and it, I don't think it's partisan either. I mean, there, there are people who are Republicans or Democrats right. in no, both there are elites. There are elites in it's both parties, and there are certainly working class people in both parties. But what I would say is that the parties are now in the process of resorting around this sort of political and cultural divide. And the, historically, the Democrats were the party of the working class. They are now much more the party of the professional class, um, and they buy into the belief set of sort of the college educated, the, you know, the, the, those sort of, you call it the woke uh, sensibility. And the Republicans are in the process of transforming into a working class sort of populist party. Yeah. And, um, and look, there are, in both parties, there are outliers who don't quite fit in anymore, but, um, but that's the fundamental transformation that's happening. Yeah. I, I mean, you guys fit into that. Your people in the Republican Party who don't fit in it anymore. I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily mind that dynamic you described so much if they weren't breaking everything and if they weren't not allowing conversations about how broken things are and the better ideas, right? It's just a very strange, illiberal nature right. to well, this. Right, well, so I think, and I just connect it with what we were talking about with Glenn, you know, Greenwald and Taibbi, is that, look, if, if you're part of the elite and you control all of these institutions, all of the, this cultural high ground, but the country is not with you, and just in terms of the sheer numbers, you are gonna use the tactics that people in power always use to suppress the greater numbers. That's where censorship comes from. The people who are running these institutions don't, they want the debate to be over. They want the power to end the debate because they're not otherwise gonna win that debate. Well, 
We're very interested in seeing where you take it, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time to share your views. Ladies really, and gentlemen, really, really. Joe Alonso. Thanks. Thanks Be. Be. What? <laughs> we need to get merch. I'm doing all in.